Hey everybody, and welcome to the Experimental Aircraft Channel's podcast, or what we like to call the EAC Aviation Podcast, where we talk to fellow builders, manufacturers, and pilots about experimental, light sport, and ultralight aviation. Be sure to check us out on the web at experimentalaircraftchannel.com. We have a lot to talk about today, so let's dive right in to the aviation conversation. All right, everybody, welcome to the podcast of Experimental Aircraft Channel. I do apologize. It has been some time. I want to say more than 30 days. I'll try to get back on it to share some more aviation news and tech talk and what I call the aviation conversation. Today, we are jumping across the pond to the UK and I'm going to talk to Tim about electric aircraft. Tim, if you could introduce yourself and where you are in the world. Good evening, Brian. Um, I am Tim, as you said. Uh, we're in England, uh, old England, not New England. Uh, we're in Norfolk specifically, so um, out on the East Coast, one of the driest and sunnier parts of the UK, which is always nice. Uh, it's also fairly flat, which is handy for short-range electric aircraft, I have to say. Um, we're, we're based at uh, an old USAAF uh, bomber base, from, it was built in 1942, I believe. There, there's loads of them around here. You can't you can't drive five miles without finding one. Um, so yeah, we're, we're based out of a, an old blister hanger uh, on some really old concrete in uh, Old Buckingham. Nice. So so there's a section of the UK that actually isn't pure green and isn't wet all the time. Uh, there is. You just have to look for it. Okay. Um, no, no. To be fair, it well, it's it's pretty grey looking out the window now, but. No, we're, um, if, if you get over towards the East Coast, we get a, a fair bit of sunshine and a lot less rain. Uh, if you're over on the Atlantic side, uh, yeah, you're right. It just rains over there. Nobody wants that. <laughs> well, tell everybody what you are building. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, just, just for a second here, I am really interested in what you're doing because I'm personally building a Zenith Cruiser and you are building a Zenith Cruiser, except we have wildly different power plants to be utilized in these airframes. So uh, tell us about the project and how it came to be and then roll into yeah. what you're using in it. Yeah, uh, well, the, the project, uh, the, it is a Zenith uh, CH750, mostly cruiser. Uh, it's got the stall landing gear on it, but it's other than that, it's a cruiser. So it's got the fixed tail, the conventional rudder, and uh, no slats. Um, that was really built as a, as a test plant for the electric power system we've developed. So what we've fitted it with is an electric motor, which is designed to broadly be a direct replacement for the Continental O200, which is shown on the plans. Yep. So that the base, I'll say the base, but the factory demonstrator when they came out, that was a hundred horsepower Continental. So you're just running with what is already a proven design from the get-go of a hundred, which this, this motor you're using is, is capable of much more. So you're really dialing this thing back and kind of uh, a locomotive style of cruising with it, aren't you? Uh, more or less, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the flash figures, the peak figures for, the, for electric motors are just crazy. You know, we can, uh, if you put a slightly smaller prop on it so you could spin it faster, you'd easily hit 300 horsepower, uh, like 380 foot-pound of torque. Um, and yeah, obviously, you, you can't maintain those sorts of power levels for very long because everything gets really warm and uh, then it gets really rattly and then it falls off and that's bad. 
Um, but uh, instead of 300 horsepower, you know, it, it'll run takeoff power at about 120 horse equivalent comfortably for certainly long enough for takeoff power. And it, it'll produce sort of 70 kilowatts more or less all day long. That's amazing. We, we spoke, uh, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago, and you're talking about this technology. And I was asking about how do you govern this being that uh, with, with electric motor technology, you have instantaneous torque. So if you were to just want to have a, have a fun grand day and firewall this thing and, and shove yourself back in the seat like a, like a quarter mile dragster, you would actually start to bend some things with this motor. Yes, you 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 have to limit the the accelerate. You have to limit the torque in the software. So you have um, a kind of a slow start um, programming. Um, sort of. Uh, it performs the same function. I mean, in the the motor controller we're using, there's uh, I don't know 120 odd separate parameters that you can program to make sure it behaves properly. And I, I think I shared a video with you a couple of weeks ago of what happens when you get one of them slightly wrong. I don't know if you recall, there was I heard what, some what noise, it? but I think there's some braking function you had in there. Uh, yeah, well. that, that was when um, uh, I, I ramped the torque request up and I hadn't upped the rev limit. And I basically ran into the speed limit before uh, there, there was a two algorithms trying to do very different things at the same time at about 120 kilohertz. So yeah, it, you can make some interesting noises by not quite programming it right. Gotcha. Um, but, but, the you know yeah, what the, just just for fun you know not that you have like you know airframes laying around but it would be an awesome video to see to have this thing on a test on a test bench the entire airframe and you just like ramp this up as fast as you can literally see this airframe torqued into a a, a swirl from the, from the torque well, of the motor it's funny you say that. Oh, really? It's because, funny that I say that. No, that's not quite what we're doing. But because the, the whole idea behind the Nuncats plan is to develop a kit form modular electric power system that we can deploy out into the real world to do useful jobs as quickly as possible. So, you know, we're not building a one-off. We're, we're going straight to a sort of pre-production prototype, if you like. So the, the motor mount, which is on the plane now, which is what we've been testing with and what we've done a lot of development on, is going to be replaced with the first one off the production tooling. So what we've now got in the fabrication shop is the final jig, and we're going to produce one off that jig, which will be exactly the same as you know serial number one through 100, say. But what that does mean, going back to your point, is we do have a spare motor mount, which we probably don't mind bending a little bit just to see how it fails and when. Yeah. So certainly after first flight, so maybe when the weather starts getting bad and we've got nothing better to do with our time, we'll put the old motor mount back on, uh, set the prop to insanely coarse pitch, and then throw 260 amps at it and uh, see what bends. 1.21 gigawatts. That's a back to the future reference. I don't know if you've ever seen. Uh, yeah, no, I know. I'm just okay. still thinking about the fact that the gigawatts, it's a hard G. Uh, okay. Yeah, we, we, don't have, we don't have gigawatts to play with, sadly. But, I mean, it, 
we we can certainly throw for for enough time for it to break. We can throw two hundred kilowatts at it. Okay. Well, that that being said, I'm also thinking competition here wise. I just came back from several. If, uh, yeah, if you but could, there's probably a middle ground between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, what, I, what I'm thinking, this has become really popular. There's a young uh, pilot, Austin, that likes to throw his, I think it's a husky, into beta as soon as he lands in a stole competition and just have a wall of air pushing. And of course, you know, Patey's done that with Draco, mm. especially with an electric motor. I, I would believe you'd have an easy option to turn this into beta and reverse thrust this to stop in a shorter, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Full disclosure, uh, I accidentally ran, ran it backwards in one of our configuration <laughs> tests because uh, there was a flag wrong in the software and I, I only, we only ran it up to... Uh, oh, sure. Blame it on the software, Tim. Let's just blame oh, it on the software. I'm not blaming the software. I programmed it. It was definitely me. It was just via the software rather than via a spanner. I'm going um, to use a Back to the Future reference here again where Michael J. Fox is, is tuning the amps up and he stands in front of this giant speaker and strums that first chord and blows them backwards. So did you get blown back into the hangar wall? Uh, no, no, it was it was much less dramatic. What happened was uh, I, I ran it up to about I don't know, maybe eight nine hundred RPM or something, and was just aware of the fact that there really was a slightly odd noise and not a lot of wind. <laughs> they sort of <laughs> hanging my head around the screen, going, "There's something." Have I like set the pop the prop to zero pitch? So I just shut it down, and then as it wound down, I looked at it and went, "Oh, hang on, I see what's going on here." <laughs> oh wait, so so back up a second here. So not only are you controlling the motor with a, a motor controller, speed controller, but you have a variable pitch electrically um, controlled prop? No, no, no. It, it's, it's ground adjustable. It's, okay, okay. When, when we did our initial configuration test, you know, to make sure the throttle worked and it span the, span the right way, for example, I see. Um, we, we had, the, we had the, the pitch set real fine just because, yeah, we, we didn't need to be producing thrust at that point. We just needed to make sure everything worked. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, that, that was when I discovered that I programmed it to uh, spin backwards, which would have been embarrassing had there been anyone there to see. But I've just realized that I've probably just told quite a lot of people who never needed to know <laughs> just, that, that. Just the world, or at least a couple hundred people that might be listening in. Uh, in which case, uh, yeah, it's too late for plausible deniability, isn't it? No, that, that, that did happen. Well, on this, on this subject here of adjustable prop, is that not really necessary with an electric motor because the torque that you have on tap, you could just, once you, I mean, once you figure out an optimum setting, leave it because you've got, if you need, if you need the torque, it's there to pull that prop. Yeah. We, to, to a large extent. Yes. Um, okay. We went with a, a ground adjustable prop partly because in our development program, we want to be able to test what the ideal compromise is between your short field performance and, and cruise. Um, and also the, the chap who imports most of the Zeniths into the UK also imports the, um, the French-made Duke uh, propellers, which are quite tasty, and he uh, did us quite a nice price on them. So I, I, I know they're good-looking. I didn't know they were edible, but thank you for uh, letting me know you, you've tried them. I'm sorry, is that, that not, a, not an internationally recognized <laughs> euphemism? Um, I'm not actually spent – I'm not that desperate yet. I'm not licking the bug jam off the propellers. Um, <laughs> But no, yeah, they're, they're, they're a, a decent propeller that has a lot of technical merit and they're quite easy to adjust. And um, for the sake of a direct comparison, 
quite a lot of people are putting them on the UL power engines that develop sort of 117 horsepower or 130 horsepower, which is right about where we're going to be. Sure, sure. So, I had a chance to uh, not visit the factory over there in France, but the dealer over here in the US did a, a short segment on them. And I was very impressed with the product myself. Mm. They, make a good, they make good quality props. So what, rolling into the, the, the background or the, the motor, what brand of motor is this or what type of motor? Talk about the specifics yeah, on that. It's, it's an MRAX. So it's, it's made in Slovenia. Um, I slightly suspect they're mostly made because the guy who runs the company uses them as range extenders in his gliders and has, has done for years. Um, but they supply the engines, the motors to Pipistrel for things like the, the E alpha, you know, they're the little two seat trainer. Yeah. So the, the sinus and the virus and the, yeah, those, those yeah. Same, same family. Yeah. Same family of motors. Um, and, 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 I'm sorry. Motors. I know I pronounced it wrong. I, I, the American way of saying those words is sinus and virus, but they say sinus and virus. It sounds sexier when you say it in, in those ways, right? Hey guys, I just got well, a virus, not a virus. <laughs> I, I, have, I have that every day with a, an electric motorbike that's made in Italy. So everybody pronounces the name wrong. Uh, yeah, it, it's an uphill struggle, but you know, it's that fine line between are you, are you pronouncing it correctly or are you just being pretentious? There you go. Who can tell? <laughs> um, right, Mary Poppins. Indeed. Well, let's, let's not get into accents and go down that rabbit hole. I love um, it. I love it. No uh, disrespect. Yeah. Anyway, it's fine. Anyway, where were we? Motors, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we tested uh, a couple of different configurations on, on the jigs last year. Um, and ultimately, for the first demonstration model, which is, you know, what we're, what we're power testing now, we went with the MRAX because it's essentially the same motor which is in the certified electric Pipistrels. So it's a lot easier for us to demonstrate that it's an appropriate level of quality and reliability for a permit to fly aircraft if it's the same motor that's already in use in a certified aircraft. Sure, proven um, tech, yeah. Yeah, we're, yeah we're, we're picking our battles. Um, some, some of the other motors we've tested are in use in LSAs in Europe, but not full certified and not in the same sort of volume production. So... There are more power dense options that we're looking at as well, but not all at the same time because a very small number of us working basically in a shed to try to do what an awful lot of people think is either not worth doing or not not possible. Hey, I understand that's how Harley Davidson got their start in a shed, right? So, hey, look, look, let's look where they went. Well, in the, this part of the world has a pretty good reputation for things rolling out of sheds and working. So yeah, I'm going to go with it. Nice. Hell, even the Wright brothers, weren't they push bike mechanics by trade? That's right. Yeah. There you go. That's right. Yeah. So, it, it, it'll be fine. If you do it in a shed, it must work. There's some logic for <laughs> that's you. That's where all good ideas are born in a shed. Or some a people, even, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> All right, so rolling on to the other tech here is the battery. I assume it's a lithium option. Uh, what's the tech behind the battery, yeah. and, and how do you? Uh, we we went with uh, lithium ion. They're eight, eighteen six fifty cells. Uh, you know, just like Tesla used to use, and yeah, they're quite common in a lot of high power applications now. Um, they don't have absolute 
cutting edge energy densities anymore, but they're, they're, they're known good. They're at a reasonable price point now and they, they're good enough to prove the point. Um, yeah, there's a lot of automotive OEMs have got solid state batteries just on the horizon and we'll, if we, we can get our hands on those uh, as soon as we can, we'll use them. But in this version, it's lithium iron in, in a off the shelf cell configuration. Because again, it's an easier route to certification for, sorry, okay. it's not certification. It, it's an easier route to get, get the permit to fly in the UK if we're using an off the shelf technology in a way which is unremarkable, shall we say. Uh, there's a couple other companies that have you know, taken this route with electric and with lithium and it seems to be this magic round number of one hour flight time. I, I assume that's where you're at with this as well. And, and what is the limiting factor? Why is this one hour magic number keep on popping up here? Um, well, I think I, I've heard, heard this from the other side as well. There's, there's a general consensus that to be, to be a viable aircraft, you have to be able to fly one hour with a reserve, two passengers with luggage. And the, those numbers, I think, come from an understanding of what consumers will engage with, what somebody will be willing, you know, what compromise people are happy with. Um, technically, if you have a aerodynamically slippery, modern, fairly light composite aircraft, you'll still struggle to meet that with a decent uh, amount of luggage on board and two people who aren't built like racing snakes. Um, which is why a lot of, a lot of the big companies, you know, are either ignoring, uh, electric altogether and going straight to hybrid or sorry, going via hybrid, I should say, or looking at alternatives like hydrogen, which in the longer term will get them those sorts of the, the endurance. Um, there aren't that many people who are going pure electric and expecting to hit one hour plus a reserve with two people plus luggage. Um, what we looked at was the fact that in large parts of the world, especially the developing world, yeah, you know, there's just off the top of my head, there's something like 1.6 billion people who have no functioning access to healthcare. You know, the 1.6 billion people. There's something like four and a half thousand infant infant deaths every day that could have been prevented by access to primary health care. Now set that against the fact that aircraft, petrol aircraft have been around for a hundred years and their range is measured in, you know, thousands of miles with an endurance of six, eight, ten hours. Yet 20% of the world's population has no access to healthcare. Range was never the problem. If you want to drive real social impact, you need reach, not range. Right. And so, and to, interrupt, so to interrupt our technical talk for a minute, yeah, I, I'm talk, sorry. I talk about the heartfelt <laughs> talk here. Go ahead, yeah. since you're, you're talking yeah, already. Nuncats yeah, exists as a humanitarian yeah. effort, correct? What, yeah, exactly. Nuncats exists to demonstrate that you can increase the reach of light aircraft by making them cheaper, simpler, and more available. So if you take a kit, which any school, college, or university in the world can assemble, and you make it run off nothing but solar power, 
and they use chargers which tie into existing microgrids, we can actually start to reach parts of the world where you know, people have to walk 25 miles to get to a clinic which has no medicine when they get there. Mm. That's not where the world should be in the 21st century. And we can take a lot of this off the shelf kit, you know, 18650 batteries, battery management systems that are used in like race cars built by universities, off the shelf kit planes. And just by integrating it in a way which makes it simple to assemble and makes it as cheap as possible, delivering that within a non-profit framework is a thing we felt should exist in the world. So uh, Nuncats, for everybody listening, is the company you started. Yeah, Nuncats is a, um, I don't think you have them in the US. It's called a community interest company. So it's a company limited by shares, um, but we're legally obliged to fulfill the mission before the prof before we make profit, basically. So you know, we ultimately, if we can, you know, our CH750 with the electric conversion kit on it, we'll do you know half an hour around the pattern, easy enough. If your students particularly like, maybe a bit more. Um, but in the first build, you know, that sort of, we'll be testing half hour test flights. If you want no passenger, put two more batteries in it. You might get on for an hour if you've got a light pilot and no load. Um, But if we can find 10 people in the world who are happy with clean, quiet, short flights for hour building, training or whatever, if we can find 10 of those to sell the kit to, then instead of making profit off it, we can give one to someone who's distributing medicine up the Congo River Valley or a midwife in Kenya who can only go out if it hasn't rained because otherwise the roads are closed. Right. And you know, it isn't, it's, you know, I, I, it's a niche application for sure. There are, let, let's say one in a hundred sport pilots would be happy to have that short range, but one in a hundred sport pilots is enough pilots that we could put 10 or 15 of these out into the real world every year. And 10 or 15 of these in the real world could be saving hundreds or thousands of lives. Yeah, and awesome. that's, a, that's, a non, that's a non-trivial change in the world, you know. Yeah. The world would be a better place if it existed. <laughs> so we set up a company to uh, prove that it could be done. That's awesome. And, and then six months later, there was a plague. <laughs> so... <laughs> Not, there's always, there's always something pushing back against your ideas, right? But yeah, I don't believe in such things. It's all fine. <laughs> all right. So going to uh, in the field here, you got this this plane that will have roughly an hour plus uh, reserve for safety time in the air, and that will have to run on a schedule. I'm sure you can't just probably firewall the whole entire time. You'll have to get into cruise configuration to be able to extend that that range, just like any other aircraft. But once it gets to a destination. What does the infrastructure look like on the ground to be able to charge and uh, get back into the air again? Um, well, it depends on, we've got two, two basic models. Um, we've got a sort of home station, if you like, which is what we're building at Old Buckingham at the moment, actually. That's why, why I've got concrete on my coveralls today instead of grease, um, which is uh, a sort of solar shade. It's like a carport, but big enough to put a cruiser underneath. Um, the roof is entirely solar panels. It's got uh, a big box full of lead acid batteries. 
and it's a, a normal microgrid. So you've got inverters that you know make the solar charge the batteries and the batteries charge the plane. And off one of them, you could, in summer, three, maybe four flights a day without you know ever ever getting any fuel off the grid. In out in the wild, so to speak, uh, it's a slightly different model because you wouldn't be doing multiple charges per day. You just have to know that you know the once a week you go to a particular clinic, the batteries will be charged. So you only have a couple of solar panels in that sort of application. And what's the and charge time? Ways. What's the charge time with using just solar or solar uh, or grid power? Oh well, no, you, you still go the solar or the grid charge uh, a lead acid ground battery. So that's a normal like off grid battery that you'd have in your your cabin or whatever. Um, the charger that goes DC to the plane, the first one that we're using at the moment, it's about three hours there or thereabouts. Um, but to be honest, that's because we don't want to give the batteries a hard time and I haven't turned it all the way up to 10 yet. Okay. Um, we're we're going to be replacing that. That only runs off a single phase. So that's a, a single phase 230 volt charger. Um, we're going to put two more phases on the system and then have a, a 20 kilowatt charger, which will charge the plane in 80 minutes. There or thereabouts. Wow. And we, we might be able to go a bit faster, but then we're, then we're into the uh, realms of experimental. Yeah. Um, start cooking batteries. Well, uh, it's not actually the, the battery isn't the limit because you're always going to be charging it slower than you're discharging it in the air. So it's it's not so much overheating the battery; it's about the the balancing resistors. When you're in the, the sort of middle of the charge range between, say, ten percent and eighty percent state of charge, you more or less just throw current at it, and it's all fine. Yeah. But as the battery gets full, the slight differences in cell capacity starts to starts to show that some cells are more charged than others in percentage terms. And you can't overcharge them. So the the cells that have the slightly lower capacity charge slightly faster and you have to dump power out of them so the rest of the cells can catch up. And the systems that do that are, are the limiting factor on how fast you can get a full charge into the battery system. Okay. What uh, are you predicting the cost will be to build one of these charging stations? Oh, surprisingly, surprisingly cheap. And that's all you're getting out of me while <laughs> building the prototype. Um, no, honestly, um, literally today I've, I've been talking to some of our suppliers and some of the contractors we're working with to try to pull together the actual final costs because with a small team working on finishing the airframe and finishing the power system testing and finishing the ground power systems as well, there's a couple of loose ends where we're in the middle of tying up. So... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get you mentioned, ask me you, next month. Actually, next month. You mentioned I was asking about the cost of stuff, and you said, ironically, one of the, the biggest expenditures for this is the connectors, right, for, from the battery to the charging yeah. station or even to the motor? Uh, well, yeah, one of the, the – it's a side effect of why we're doing it, ultimately. You'll know if you're wiring an aeroplane, generally you take a wire from – source to load and you don't put connectors in it you don't absolutely need um but ours has to be a kit which anyone can assemble 
and it has to be able to be retrofitted to an existing already built plane which means there are more plugs than you could get away with um so yeah we, we've got uh the the connectors on each battery module have uh, parallel power pins and then bus communication pins there's a few pins for the safety systems and the the emergency disconnectors um so by the time you've got one of those on each battery module with you know the the over center catches to make sure they all stay locked up and the the ingress protection on them yeah you, you end up with actually quite a, a reasonable chunk of the budget in terms of mass and money actually is just spent on the incredibly boring things like plugs and sockets ironic slightly but it turns the, out other difficult challenges and then the expenses down to the little nitty-gritty stuff well absolutely i mean you would not believe how many sets of crimping pliers we now have on the asset register the answer oh, is several. It. I'm not counting them for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when do you think this thing is going to be uh, taking flight? You, you obviously have uh, been ground testing this now. And what is the plan for, to get it into the air and see what it's going to do then? Well, we are, uh, the configuration testing is more or less done. So that's the, you know, every, everything does what it should and goes in the right direction. Uh, we're on a bit of a pause at the moment in terms of power testing because we're getting ready for the air show at the end of the month where we'll be taxiing it about for people to look at um and then after that we get back to the full power testing fast taxi testing through august we might just about uh, do a first flight in august but if we get it done in september i'll be happy nice well and then thereafter we've got obviously we've we've got to build some time in in the pattern at our airport so we can get the in the uk at least they they will will be issued a permit to test by the laa which essentially allows us to get in the air and start putting hours on it and when they're satisfied that it does actually work then we get a permit to fly which means we can roam around the countryside um, and off the back of that, we've got seven other airfields around the county where we're going to put the the small charges in so we can start demonstrating that e even if you do compromise the range by using you know, a fairly high drag airframe and a fairly heavy aircraft with relatively small batteries, we can still bounce around a county the size of Norfolk powered by nothing but sunshine getting in and out of short dirt strips. Um, and even at that point, there will be people who say that the range is too short to be useful. And we'll point out that even in cases where that's approaching true, yeah. as long as the sun keeps shining, we keep flying. The roads can close, we fly. The grid can fall over, we fly. Got and it, that's, yeah, that's one of the big untapped benefits of electric vehicles in general is the resilience they can afford. Because once you've once you've got the the vehicle and you've got the generation assets in place, it's it's a standalone system that needs no further internal external input. Let me ask you a, a couple other parting questions here, and that is what we've seen the tech and automotive uh, with the regenerative like braking and stuff like that. Let's say that you're you know using this as a another 
um, asset as a, as a trainer and you're in the, in the pattern doing pattern work, obviously you're going to expel a lot more power on takeoff and climb than you would to regenerate. But in, when you pull that power back, when you're turning crosswind or downwind um, or maybe midfield downwind, what's the amount of regenerative power you can get from the prop spinning that motor back or does that not work in this, this application? Well, the, the hardware we've got installed has the capacity to do it. The aerodynamics of it don't really make much sense. Okay. It's a draggy airplane. So you pull the power, but you're dropping anyway. So you're not really, you just stall the prop. Okay. You just stop the, I mean, no, you, you could configure it to pull a little bit of power back. Yeah. Um, I haven't done any detailed studies on exactly where that level would be before you do just stop the prop. Um, but it's certainly not something I've looked at in any great detail because the consensus is you, it's a lot, a lot more complexity and a lot of time setting up something that doesn't really give you. Or much you simply will be training a lot larger numbers of glider pilots in the future than well, you know, stop the prop. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone's concerned about engine stoppages. Every, every, <laughs> every landing's dead stick. Every landing in our airplane is a dead stick. Yeah. I mean, you we get midfield re- downwind. You don't need a propeller, <laughs> right? You just glide the rest of the yeah. way down. I, I, don't, I don't think we can turn base to final and then recertify it as a glider. Why not? <laughs> then then you can have an hour and a half of runtime in, in your system there than an hour. Yeah, no, there's... That, it won't surprise you to hear that over the last couple of years that there have been all sorts of interesting suggestions from various friends of mine, usually on a Friday night, sometimes okay. at the bowling alley, where people have come up with ideas significantly more crazy than that. Beer in um, bed. But actually, I mean, there, there is a, I can't remember what they're called. There's a company, uh, Your Way of the World, who are developing a, an electric stall plane for short range cargo operations. Mm. Um, and what, what they're doing, I, I, I don't think it will make, sorry, chair failure. Um, I don't think it will make it uh, from the renders to the prototype, but they've got uh, regenerative brakes in the wheels. So instead of relying on the propeller to do the work on the ground, it's much more efficient to use motors in the wheels to get you up to rotation speed. Um, and you only use the prop once you're you know, basically flying. Um, and conversely, as soon as you touch the ground, you can use the wheels to regeneratively brake. Like and that it. was something we did look at, uh, uh, you know, right back at the beginning. But the fact of the matter is, it's just too much complexity and cost. And uh, it's just extraneous to what we're trying to do, because you know, we, we think these can be surprisingly cheap. And there will be places in the world where they do fill a niche and, yeah. and do, do useful stuff. So the other side of that tech question for this, talking about solar stuff and electrical, um, you know, you've seen people talking about putting solar cells on, on, on roofs as shingles. Uh, I'm sure the tech will, will only get better and perform better and, and thinner and stuff like that. Uh, is there anything that exists right now today that you could re- replace your top skin of your wing with a solar panel cell that would... I don't know if you could, you could fly off one battery and one like go back and forth. One's charging for five minutes, one's drawing, and then switch over. And then, is there anything that exists like that that would be useful or no? Uh, potentially, yes. I mean, the, there was NASA flew a solar plane the whole way around the planet on exactly that technique. Um, 
there are various issues in doing it in the world of you know traditional construction stole planes um the the surface area of the wing uh, isn't really big enough uh the, the well, zenith is a is a flying box kite so you've got the whole tail section that you could cover that with as well right so yeah, you could i mean it's funny you say that because I, I took a photo when i was over at the hangar this morning all the the solar panels for our first charger just got dropped off this morning so uh, i took a photo of this big old crate of solar panels sitting in front of the plane uh, and i was going to caption it something like for all the people who keep asking why i don't put solar panels on the wings this is how many solar panels you need for three flights a day it's a pretty big crate of solar panels, to be honest. Um, you, you could do it. The, the, the technical issues, as much as anything, is you can't get enough volts off that much solar to directly charge the batteries as a whole. So you'd have to split the battery bus into its modules and then charge them sort of one at a time. And you, that, that's quite a lot of extra switching gear and a lot of complexity in the, in the DC power systems. Um, and the other thing is just the amount of energy you're going to get out of it. The the only sort of viable use case I can see for it in you know off-grid bush plane type operation is if you get to a charging station that you think should be able to charge your plane and it's been shot up or burnt out or whatever, then if you've got solar panels on your wings, you might have to sleep in the cockpit for a day or two, but you'll get charged eventually. Um, you know, it, well, then you could do uh, what, what is it called? Solar winds. You got solar panels on the wing, and then you you flip up these uh, squirrel cages that catch the wind too, and then you're you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that's more Mad streams Max. of charging. Yeah. yeah, that's more Mad Max than Star Trek, isn't it? But you know, <laughs> what was it the man said? Hope for one, but plan for the other. There you go. There you go. Well, thanks, Tim, for uh, for jumping on and talk with guys. If you want to see what this guy's mug looks like, we did a short 15, 20 minute video on YouTube that I put up, but I wanted to do a longer form here and on the podcast so we could get into some more technical stuff. So uh, this is probably two or three times longer than that episode. But if you want to see what this guy looks like, you can catch this on you, YouTube no, as well. No, why would you do that? <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> All right. So if somebody wanted to follow you personally. How can they uh, find you on social and um, in it, the world? If you search for Nuncats, uh, N-U-N-C-A-T-S, nothing to do with women of the cloth or domestic felines, but that's how it's spelled. Um, we're on fa Facebook is where I sort of do updates on the, the plane and the, the charger and all that sort of progress. Uh, the slightly more serious social impact side of it is managed by uh, uh, my wife, who's much more sensible and in charge of that kind of thing that's on the twitter account so that's uh, worth a look if you're interested in the kind of uh, ngos and charities where we're talking to about where these might be in the world and uh when the cowls are on and after after its first public showing at the air show there'll be a youtube channel popping up which uh will be full of terribly edited badly shot video but you know it, It'll give you some idea what it looks like in 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 the flesh, so to speak. Hey, I, I'm, I've always heard the you know start before you're ready, so you have to begin somewhere on your timeline, right? 
Indeed, indeed. So, well, so the nun cats, the name, is, does that come from like the cats that have none, being that you're humanitarian, uh, non-for-profit here, cats that no, have none? No, no, it didn't. We were, we'd come up with the idea, we'd done some feasibility studies, we decided that we could not, even though this is the most ridiculously low-cost electric aircraft, we couldn't quite do it on our own, but if we set it up as a non-profit, we could make a sustainable uh, sort of business out of it. And we'd done all that and we realized we still didn't have a name for it. And we had to file the papers because we needed a bank account to get trading. So um, we had to come up with something real quick. Uh, Nuncats is a uh, sort of portmanteau of two concepts. The, the nun derives from uh, a principle I cooked up in an R&D job I had a few years ago. Uh, no unnecessary novelty. It was what I used to tell people whenever they came to my desk and went, oh, we could do it like this. And unless they had a really good reason for this ridiculously extravagant, clever thing they'd come up with, I'd just go, no. <laughs> You're that guy. You're that guy. But yeah, here you are presenting this to the world. Look at you. I, I'm that guy now. <laughs> um, no, because, you know, I, I think there, there is a time and a place for novelty. But I think we as a species kind of waste a lot of time on, on shiny consumer gadget stuff that, let's face it, nobody really needs, do they? Well, how, how ridiculous so, was some of these ideas? Like, you know, Tim, you should really add like a coffee maker to your cruiser. Oh, no, no. This, this was chemical process R&D. So there was people who were coming up with things that was just like, oh, look, we've got this great new heat exchanger. And I talked to one of the other guys about it and we'd go, yeah, what, what you've just drawn there is actually a hydrogen syngas explosive device well done you're going to go to jail and get killed for doing it thank you go away so anyway sorry the the nun part of nuncats is the principle of no unnecessary novelty so you know keep it simple essentially and the cats came about because we wanted to deliver community benefit alternative transport systems that that is like the world's largest acronym then i think nuncats yeah more or less yeah yeah it's so Sorry. long. I, don't think I, can, I remember one. I don't think I can remember the other one, but now we know. Yeah, in, indeed. Wikipedia. Now you know. And can can you enter that into Wikipedia so it will show up in Google from now on? Don't, go, don't give me ideas. Don't go there. I, I had actual work to do this evening, and now I'm going <laughs> to spend the next two hours writing my own Wikipedia entries. You see people. You see friends. You see fellow builders. This is why I love aviation. This is why I call the aviation conversation. It's just fun. It's just fun. Well, everybody, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for supporting us in trying to reach more people to get into experimental light sport and ultralight aviation. As you can see, there's all kinds of fun things happening in this industry, in this world. A lot of creative people, a lot of interesting people, and we appreciate you being here. So we'll catch you in the next episode. I will try not to be so long in between these podcasts, get some more people on to talk too, uh, while you're working in your shop, in your hangar, in your garage, or driving to work. But we do appreciate you. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for downloading and listening to our podcast today. Hopefully you built something in your garage or hangar while listening. That's it for us today here on the EAC Aviation Podcast. I'm out. <laughs>